The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. All right, let's take our Bibles now, if you would, and open them to Exodus chapter 28, and we continue our study this evening of Israel's sacrificial system, and this involves the five offerings, the two different types of offerings that we find in the Old Testament that are the sweet savor and the non-sweet savor with the intention of presenting pictures of Christ in the Old Testament. The animals of sacrifice and other materials that were used, things like oil and incense, uh, those pictured specific areas of Christ's life and death, and as essential as those were to show the areas of the life and death in Christ, so is the work of the priest that shows us different pictures of Christ. So from top to bottom, going through every aspect of worship in the tabernacle, it spoke of Christ's priesthood uh, and uh, his offerings, his, his sacrifice, and what he did for us on Calvary. And again, I'll say the priesthood is no exception to that to show us pictures of Christ in the Old Testament. And that's an integral part of the system because this is the human part. This is God using man as an instrument, which is characteristic of the way that God accomplished his work uh, since, since the very beginning, that God calls men and he sanctifies men. He puts them into the service of assisting his people in their worship of him. So priests are men. God didn't choose angels. He didn't choose any supernatural beings. He chose men. And he chose men that have all the frailties of men. And that helped them to identify with the people. They're familiar with the trials of life. The priest was familiar with all the sins that men commonly would commit. So the priests had their own difficulties because they are men. They suffered all the shortcomings that human flesh entails. And it may be difficult for us to understand, how does a priest, a man who, who also sins, how does he represent the sinless Christ? Well, God has a way of making that typology work. Uh, they were priests, just as Hebrews 5 verse 1 says, the author of Hebrews said, For every high priest is taken from among men and is ordained for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. So the first thing that a priest would do is to offer for his own sins. And then when those sins have been cleansed, then he begins the work of exemplifying Christ. Likewise, the Bible teaches that Christ was chosen from among men. So that he could experience life in the same way that we do. And as both man and God, Christ was able to bridge the gap between the two, understanding exactly what man needs and also what God requires. And so Jesus Christ in every way is suitable to be our high priest. Now, in Israel's worship, the high priest was the most significant person. He had a critical role of, uh, to fill representing Christ as he went about his duties, and even as he did those, he may not have fully understood exactly what they were all about, and I'm sure that he didn't, because uh, these things are not revealed until we get into the New Testament. But in a general way, he represented God to the people. He was the visible 
point of contact. As they watched him go about his duties, as he performed all of those, he was God close to them. Now, I pointed this out the last time. They didn't consider him to be God. They in no way thought that the priest was God. But he represents God to them. They see God in him. So he could go places they couldn't go. The interior of the sanctuary in the tabernacle was a place that men couldn't go, not the ordinary man. Only priests can go there. And it's only the high priest that one time each year could go to the holiest of all places. That's the sanctuary where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And only he could push aside that veil and walk in there in the presence of God in that brilliant light of the Shekinah glory. Well, in Exodus 28, verse number 2, in our text this evening, God said, And thou shalt make holy garments for Aaron thy brother, for glory and for beauty. Our subject is the priest clothing. And this will occupy us for several Sunday nights. We find that clothing listed. We read the entire chapter the last time, chapter number 28. Aaron was the representative of God. He was the priest. And he must represent God in holiness and in beauty, or represent Christ in holiness and beauty. And so the colors, or rather the clothes that were made for him, were extraordinarily beautiful. The fabrication of these clothes was made by the most talented men because God gave them the ability to make these specific items of clothing. Each piece that he wore had to be worthy of Christ to make him, the priest, shine above all of the rest of the people. William Brown, in his book, The Tabernacle, Its Priest and Services, wrote, The priestly robes were far more splendid than some people are apt to suppose. Their great costliness and exceeding loveliness is indicated in the Scripture account of them. Yet, in these aspects, we have no doubt they may have been surpassed and outshone by the costumes of some heathen priests and eastern potentates. What distinguishes and differentiates the robes of the Jewish high priest from the most gorgeous attire ever worn by earthly grandees is their spiritual significance. And that spiritual significance is what this study is all about. So I hope in some small way as we go through this study that we show the grandeur and the glory of Jesus Christ through these clothes, through these clothes that were given to the high priest. Now in the last message we started near the end of Exodus 28 to take up the order in which the priest put on these holy garments. But the 28th chapter doesn't begin that way. Uh, the, the articles of clothing are actually shown from the outside in rather from the inside out. So we had to go to the end of the chapter and we're taking our study as the priest would put on those garments. And so we must start with undergarments, the things that he puts on at first. Now the undergarments are, are clothes that aren't seen. But God's not short on details just because no one could see these clothes he intends to leave nothing out, and so every piece that the priest put on says something about Christ. The undergarments are in verse number 42. And thou shalt make them linen breeches to cover their nakedness from the loins, even unto the thighs they shall reach. So, the undergarments we began with on the last, uh, the last message, and that was fine linen. They're made of fine linen, which stands for the purity of Christ. Now notice how direct that the Lord is. The linen breeches, it says, are to cover the nakedness of the priest. 
Now you rewind this story 2,500 years to 3,000 years before the time that we're reading here, and nakedness is the very first issue that was addressed when Adam was awakened to the knowledge of good and evil. Adam took all of about five seconds to understand that nakedness is evil. And from that time, nakedness as a symbol is diametrically opposed to holiness. And God was very careful to take care of this first. There must be holiness and not nakedness. Now covering Adam's nakedness was a symbol of God covering Adam's sin of disobedience. And so to put this in another way, nakedness is a symbol of disobedience. That's a violation of God's law of holiness. We should know that, and we should be aware of it. This is fundamental uh, doctrine found in the Word of God, and, and uh, to have nakedness, to be naked, is fundamentally an act or lack of holiness. God knows what we are. He certainly does, and I think that it's impossible for us to shock God. We can't shock God with even the worst sins that we do, because He knows what humans are. But if God could be shocked then I would say sometimes when if he come, would come into uh, a church service, he would be shocked by some of the things that he sees people wear. Now Christ is holy, and we ought to do our best to keep everything that we do holy and cover up nakedness. Now we started our, our discussion on this point in explaining how the white linen depicts the righteousness of the priest. Fine white linen is emblematic of righteousness. Now, an example of this is a future scene that we see in heaven where at the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's the marriage of Jesus Christ to His bride. And in Revelation 19, verses 7 and 8, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and His wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. Now the priest was to be a righteous man. His conduct was an example for Israel. And the priest's work was developed out of Christ's law, or out of God's law, the law given on Sinai. When Moses came down from the mountain, he received all of these laws, the Ten Commandments, he received the ceremonial law, he received the laws of diet and all of those different things, the laws of sacrifice, and also this... It's the law of the priest. And he received all the garments of the priest. And the law is intended or was given to reflect God's righteous character. And so that's what this clothing is all about. The moral and ceremonial aspects of this is about God's righteous character. Well, people don't see underwear. Not supposed to. But they assume that it's there. I'm not going to ask you if you're wearing underwear tonight, but I assume that it's there. And you can't see into a person's heart just like you don't see underwear. But you assume that if a person claims to be a child of God, and especially if he claims to be, for instance, a preacher of the Word, that you would expect that he would be holy. Now, you ought to be as holy as any person ever was. You need to be as holy as the preacher is, certainly. But you might think, well, the preacher, you know... He's got extra responsibilities. He's supposed to be a step or two above everybody else. And there's a certain truth to that. But the fact is, you can't see every aspect of a preacher's life. 
All pastors, including me, would be afraid if you could see everything that was in our heart. And that's because we're subject to temptations. We're men just like everybody else, and that's pretty much this whole thing of identification with the people. We sin just like other people sin. But you want to know this about the pastor, that at least he's striving to, to be holy, that he's not satisfied unless he's constantly striving for that holiness. So this inner piece of clothing, the part that's closest to the priest, that's the picture of the righteousness of that priest, the fact that he is holy. Now the thought of personal holiness caused me to think of two groups that believe Old Testament priesthood is to be preserved in the New Testament church. I mentioned this very briefly the last time, but there are a couple of groups that still believe, or do believe, that the Old Testament priesthood is to be preserved in New Testament worship. Now one of these would be the Roman Catholics. The Old Testament picture is that the outward is undergirded by the inward. That the outward is not holy unless the inward is holy. Now in, in Catholicism, the priest's garments have significance. Now because they believe that this priesthood should be perpetuated, then the garments that the priests wear also have their significance. I wear a suit and a tie... But there's no way that I believe that this coat that I wear has anything to do to make the gospel work. It has nothing to do with that. But in some instances, Catholicism teaches that the priest's garments empower him with holiness. That when he puts on his clothing, that he's consecrated when he puts that on. A few weeks ago, I, I commented on a conversation that I had with Brother Dalton in the hallway just before we came in. And he said that when he was young, he used to be an altar boy, and he said that there were many Sundays when he would arrive at church early, and he'd have to come to help the priest to get ready to serve the Mass. And he said there were many times that he came and had to awaken the priest out of a drunken stupor. Now there's a man who has first-hand knowledge of the corruption of the priesthood. But any of you that has, that has the ability to read a newspaper or has seen one, has seen the news at all, you scarcely doubt that there is corruption in the priesthood. Drunkenness, pedophilia, homosexuality, adultery, multiple counts of sexual abuse, those things are common in that priesthood. But what is it that the Roman Catholics have always done with the guilty priest? Do they dismiss them? No, we don't hear that. They don't dismiss the priest, but rather they send him to another parish where those people finally discover that that priest is not really a holy man. Well, the Vatican has always been corrupted from the highest levels. History bears that out. Priestly garments will not save their reputation. The nakedness of that priesthood is uncovered almost daily when victims come forward. Now, the popes promised that they would purge out this problem that they have with the priest, but that's met with a lot of skepticism because there's reason to believe that popes are also involved. Uh, the last pope certainly, almost certainly, stepped down because the investigations got too close. He was being personally examined. There was no pope that's been known to retire since the last pope, and that's only because it was insisted that the investigations go higher this time, all the way up to the highest office in Roman Catholicism. Now, my second comment is about Mormonism. They have holy underwear, 
that's supposed to be worn when they enter into the temple. Their doctrine is a perversion. There is no scripture that says that the ceremonies of the Old Testament are to be brought into the New Testament church. Now, admittedly, we will say this, that outwardly, Mormons appear to be more holy than priests of Catholicism. Now, they project a very wholesome image. They're great family people. They're always clean-cut and attractive. And they're, they're as near to clones of each other as you could possibly get. As part of my self-flagellation on Sunday mornings, um, I used to watch a, a Mormon service and I always marveled at them. They always look exactly the same. Every week they're exactly the same. They look all alike. Well, my, my comments about them and my complaints um, are, are not about their, their morality. I think that Baptists could learn a very good lesson from Mormons about how to live holy, more, uh, uh, moral lives, at least, at least in that respect. But in their doctrines, they have a false gospel that makes them utterly unholy. Their teachings are, are an abomination to God. Now, many Old Testament priests look good. On the outside, they look good. When they put on their costly array, they were amazingly beautiful, just like that, that uh, account of the Old Testament priest that I read from the 2nd century, uh, century B.C. in the last lesson. They look beautiful. Many times, though, the outward was a cover for the corruption of the inward. And the point of all of this that I'm trying to tell you is no one is holy because of the way they look on the outside. Holiness is a matter of your heart. You must be holy in the heart in order to be holy before God. And so the problem that we have with both Catholicism and Mormonism is their hearts have not been cleansed by faith in Jesus Christ. They believe in a false God. They believe in a false Christ. And so therefore, they aren't saved. They don't have the gospel of Jesus Christ. So false doctrine and preaching of false Christ is unholy. Whether that's Catholicism, Mormonism, or anybody else, one is as black as the other, though one may not appear as black as the other. Both of those are nakedness, and God will expose the nakedness. Now I want to move on then to the next part of the inner garments. The next thing that you would see on the priest is the linen coat. And this stands for the righteousness of Christ. In verse number 39, And thou shalt embroider the coat of fine linen. So on top of the underwear is worn this linen coat. This is a coat that covers the upper torso. Now, it was mostly covered up by the other garments that are worn on top of it. Although you would see the linen coat at the, at the, about here on the, on the sleeves, about the elbow down to the wrist, and then you would see it uh, below the skirt of the ephod, the, the robe of the ephod at the, at the bottom. So you would see that part of it. Now the inner garments speak mostly about the righteousness of a believer, but this coat speaks specifically about the righteousness of Christ. And this is the righteousness that must be imputed to the believer in the place of our imperfect righteousness. Now here it's important for us to note the distinctions in the righteousness of Christ. That he is perfectly righteous as God. That is, Christ has a righteousness that is inherent to his being. Without this righteousness, he could not be God. And so he, he is perfectly righteous in his being. That's what God is. And out of this righteousness that Christ possesses flows all of his righteous character, all of his goodness, all of his holiness that flows out of 
this intrinsic righteousness that Christ possesses. In Christ there is no darkness. That's what John said about God. He says, in Him is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. So this light that the Bible speaks of is His holiness and His righteousness. It is His glory. And that holiness and righteousness and glory can never be given to the creature. Now what we can do is we can reflect God's glory. We can, be, we can reflect the righteousness, but we can never possess God's glory. And so instead, to make us holy, God had to use a different method. And that is that we must be made holy by a law of righteousness that's given to us for our justification. Now Jesus made this clear in his kingdom manifesto. That would be the Sermon on the Mount. He said that righteousness is needed because we must be perfect as God is perfect. Now as the people heard that and they looked at their examples of righteousness, they thought that the most righteous people that ever lived were the Pharisees. These are the ones that kept the law in their estimation as well as it could be kept. But then Jesus came and he said, your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And if it doesn't, then you'll not enter the kingdom of God. And when he said that to the people, they're shocked. Because the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees is the very best. You can't get better than that. And he looked at all the... The, the burdens that they placed upon the people and told them what they had to do to be righteous, they're simply thinking this, we can't do anymore. It's impossible for us to be that righteous. And yet, Jesus preached a sermon that's a sermon about the law. The Jews loved the law. And Jesus said, if you want to be saved by that law, then you've got to keep all of it perfectly. You must be perfect as God is perfect. Later, James would write the same when he said, for whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. This perfection, according to the law, is the barrier that keeps man from having, keeps us from having the righteousness that we need. And so Christ's method of salvation is to give us that righteousness that we need. That we're saved based on the merits of his righteousness, not ours. His perfect life earned these merits. His perfect life, living according to the law, doing everything as He should, gives us the righteousness and He imputes that to us by faith. Now that word impute, uh, some people get confused about that, don't understand what it means, but it simply means to charge something to another's account or to attribute it to another person's account. And this is what Christ did in perfectly keeping the law, that when we place our faith in Him, He attributes that perfect righteousness to our account. Now from the moment that Adam ate the forbidden fruit, man's righteousness became unacceptable. And so we can never have a relationship with God based upon that failed righteousness. So as we look at, at this, the garments of the priest, there may be an allusion in here to Christ's inherent righteousness in that linen coat. But I believe it's more accurate to say that this stands for the earned righteousness of Christ in keeping the law. Well, why would I say that? Why would I make that distinction? Because I believe that, that this is about the priest's relationship to man. That humanity must be made right. And Jesus Christ as the high priest is one who is 
made right by the perfection of the law. Christ's humanity was right. He was without sin, and thus he was able to provide the righteousness that exceeds that righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Now, this righteousness that God gives is sometimes termed an alien righteousness. That means that it's not natural to us. It's foreign to us. It's an outside righteousness, foreign to our sinful nature. It can't be produced in our nature. And that's why it's impossible for us to ever do enough good works that we could be saved. Well, in the New Testament, there were many who affirmed the life of Christ and His righteousness, how unusual His character was. He was proved to be better of better character than all men of all others. Before Pilate tried him, you remember that his wife warned him. She said, you need to be careful what you do with him because he is a just man. Now, strangely enough, Pilate allowed Jesus to be crucified after he had passed judgment on him and declared him to be innocent. He said, I find no fault in this man. But then Pilate trying to get rid of the problem that he has, condemning a just man, decided to send him over to Herod. And when he went to Herod, Herod found no reason to, to convict him. Then, when Jesus was nailed to the cross, one of the thieves recognized his righteousness. And he said, we deserve to die, but this man has done nothing wrong. And remember, there's a centurion who watched him die. And the centurion said, truly, this was the Son of God. And what would make him think that this must be the Son of God? It can only be by looking at him and seeing that there is no imperfection in him. There's not a sliver of imperfection that can be found in Christ. And so it was exactly that righteous character that's the irony of the condemnation to the cross. And then Satan also inadvertently proved Christ to be righteous. He tempted him for 40 days in the desert. When Jesus was without food, when he was as weak as humans could be, he couldn't persuade Jesus to sin. He couldn't pierce the armor of his holiness. Now what the devil does is to work with human depravity. You want to know how he gets you to sin? He just works on your nature. He works on what you are naturally, what you are within. But with Jesus, he can't do that because there is no depravity. There was nothing that he could work on. And so Satan could never get him to sin because there's no place to attack him. And then God the Father declared Jesus to be righteous. He knew there was no fault in his son. And he expressed his delight in Jesus by saying, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And what does the Father do? He never approves any but the righteous. And Jesus was superlative in righteousness. Now let me return to Adam for just a moment. Here's an interesting little fact for you from Genesis 3.21. The scripture says there, Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord make coats of skins and clothe them. Now you've heard... Uh, reading from Romans and sometimes in Christmas carols, and one of those, you, you hear this, that Jesus is the second Adam. That is, that he came to do what Adam couldn't do. Now, a very interesting thing is that where it says in Genesis 3.21 that the Lord God made coats, that is the same word that's used in Exodus 28, 39 and 40 that we're talking about right now. And in both places where this term coats is used, it means covering. 
and inclusive in the meaning of atonement is covering. And what God would not do, He wouldn't accept any covering that Adam made for himself. So God covered his nakedness by sacrificing animals. So the first sacrifice that's found in Scripture is the sacrifice that God made. And isn't it interesting then that in the second Adam, that the second Adam was a sacrifice that God made? The application of the gospel in Genesis 3.15, you remember that's called the Proto-Evangelium. Genesis 3.15, the first promise of the gospel. And we see the application of the first promise of the gospel only six verses later in Genesis 3.21. Henry Sotow wrote, The religious garments which men devise to hide their nature of sin and shame become mere spider's webs when the presence of God is realized. The covering is narrower than he can wrap himself in. Sotel's comments are a combination of two scriptures. Isaiah 28, verse 20, For the bed is shorter than that a man can stretch himself on it, and the covering narrower than he can wrap himself in it. Also Isaiah 59, verse 6, Their webs shall not become garments, neither shall they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity, and the act of violence is in their hands. You ever felt uncomfortable on a bed that's too short? I'm not very tall, 6'2", something like that. And uh, I'm not very tall, so uh, it, it's kind of unusual for me to find a bed that's too short. But there are some that are much taller than me, obviously. I don't see Eric in here, but he is way much taller than me. Jim Andrews is way taller than me, and some of you are. And you may have run, they may have run across a, a time when the bed is too short. Have you ever woken up, awoken, wakened at night cold and shivering because you don't have enough covers? You don't have enough to cover you. You know, in the early morning, your body temperature drops. And even on the hottest, sweltering summer night, you still feel like you want to have some kind of covering over you, even though it's that hot. And that's because the body temperature actually drops during that time. Well, we live, spiritually speaking, in the night of 4 a.m. And our bed is too short, our covers are too narrow, or too narrow rather, and our righteousness is never enough. We can't get enough to cover us. And so we're cold, we're miserable, we're blind, and we're naked. And so here's the point, that man's righteousness, his own righteousness, will never stretch enough to cover his nakedness. So you see, we make our way back to nakedness again. Sotow also made a keen observation about skins in Genesis 3.21, and he wrote that skins in the original Hebrew was not plural, but singular. And the indication is that there was only one animal of sacrifice that covered both Adam and Eve. Now, I don't know if, that's, uh, if that was intentional, but I wouldn't want to discount it. Because if I've seen nothing else through our study of sacrifices, that God is very particular, God is very specific, and if He can show Christ in some way, He'll find it. And so everything that we study, everything that we learn, points to this, that Jesus Christ is our only hope of salvation. And yet... As much as God shouts this out through these types that we, that we see in the Bible, people put cotton deeper and deeper into their ears and they refuse to hear this. 
They drown out the shouts that say Christ is the only one. And so Christianity is plagued with false teachers who will provide lists of instructions of how we can be righteous with God, how we can be holy. And that ranges from Catholicism's acts of penance to even Baptists who have their attempts at manufacturing sanctification with dress codes. So the Old and New Testaments work perfectly together, seamlessly together, to present one gospel saving message. Both Old and New Testaments work together to prove that salvation is found only in Jesus Christ. It points to one direction, in one direction, the cross where the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. So Old Testament sacrifices and New Testament, the New Testament cross will not let you create holiness. It will not let you create righteousness or sanctification. So these are the first garments. These are the first that are put on to show the righteousness of Christ, that our future in heaven rests on that righteousness. So our personal righteousness is from Him, from eternity past to the uh, skins at the beginning of creation, to the sacrificial system, to the incarnation, to His perfect life, to the willing death of Christ. The Bible teaches salvation is of the Lord. And then at last, when his life was at the end, and everyone looked back on the life of Jesus to survey how he did, nobody from God to man could find fault in him. He is the righteousness that God requires. Well, now we move on to the next piece of clothing. Number two in your outline is the girdle. And this stands for the service of Christ. Now, there are actually two girdles that are found in the text. The first one is in verse number 8, and that's called the curious girdle. In the King James, the curious girdle, which in itself is curious, because the word curious is not in the Hebrew text. But it's called the curious girdle. I'll explain that at a later time. Uh, verse number 39, though, is the girdle that we're going to consider first, where it says, And thou shalt embroider the coat of fine linen, and thou shalt make the miter of fine linen, and thou shalt make the girdle of needlework. Now, the girdle is part of the undergarments. It's unseen. That is, it's not seen when the priest is wearing all of his garments. Now, the ordinary priest, who didn't wear all these special garments of the high priest, this was a girdle that was seen. It was worn around the robe that he wore. Well, girdle, um, that has a different meaning today than when the King James was, was translated. So we're not talking about a Playtex girdle that's made to flatten the stomach, the tummy, and, and hold in your thighs so you have a better figure. That's not what this is for. But this girdle is a sash, a sash-like belt that's used to hold the garments tight against the waist and to keep the robe closed. Another description is found in Exodus 39, verse 29. And a girdle of fine twine linen and blue and purple and scarlet of needlework as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, the color of this girdle and the material of it are the same as what they used to make the ceiling of the tabernacle and also that veil that was between the um, holy place and the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant was. So you have these different colors. You have, you have white, uh, the white linen is Christ's righteousness. Blue is for Christ's heavenly character. Purple is for his kingship and scarlet is for his blood. Now, people disagree 
Uh, Bible interpreters disagree about which girdle is talked about in verse number 29. And also this, did the ordinary priest wear a multicolored girdle like this one? I tend to think that the ordinary priest's girdle was probably just a plain white girdle that went around his uh, sash that went around his robes. But regardless of that, whether it was or it wasn't, the girdle tied at the waist is to symbolize the servanthood of Christ. So we note first, and this is where we'll, we'll end tonight, that this girdle stands for the strength of the loins for service. Make no mistake about this, that priestly work is work of service. The high priest was a tireless servant working night and day. He was to be busy about everything that he did for the Lord. He was doing this work for others. Now, as we read Hebrews, the priest, um, as we read that a moment ago, the priest is ordained for men. The New Testament equivalent of this would be the pastor who does his work for men. He is a minister, and that word minister means servant. So if you want to be a minister in the church, all you're asking for is to be a servant. That's what it means. Now, although I study because I need that study for myself and the prayer I need for myself, while you're on the job doing the work for your family to make a living and all these things, uh, although I do the prayer and the study for me, mostly as the minister, the servant of the church, I do it for you. And what I do is to provide you with the spiritual benefit that while you do all the other work, when you can't do what I'm doing, you're doing all the other work, that I'm preparing a meal for you so that you could come to church on Sundays or whatever days that we meet, and there you can feast on the Word of God. That's the, that's the pastor's service. Now the girdle held the garments in place so as not to encumber the priest for his service. It kept the robes from, from falling and, and getting in his way. Elastic wasn't invented until 1820. And so until that time, people had a hard time keeping up their fruit of the looms. So this is the 1500, year 1500, uh, uh, 1500 BC method uh, of keeping your, your undergarments on. You put on the sash that tied them up and kept them in place. There's an old saying that says, roll up your sleeves and get to work. And the reason that you do that, you roll up your sleeves to get those out of the way so they don't, uh, they don't encumber you in your work. And so this is essentially what we find here. Uh, the, the, the thing of having a sash was to keep the priest from being encumbered in his work. But a better idea, perhaps, of the purpose of the girdle would be like a back brace. Now, you've seen workers at Home Depot wear these, the, the back brace that they put on when they're lifting things. Sometimes you'll see a UPS driver that wears one of those when he has to lift heavy boxes. And the idea of that is the strength, the strength of it. And so this girdle, that's what this represents, the strength that he needs for service. Now, as we close out this evening, I want to take you to John chapter 13. If you take your Bibles and turn there, uh, this scripture ties into this Old Testament type of this sash that the priest wore. And here in John chapter 13 is Christ in his high priestly work as a servant. This is Jesus on the night before his crucifixion. He met with the disciples to observe the Last Supper. But before they sat down to eat, he washed their feet. And with the humility of a servant... The God of heaven bent down to wash dirty feet. John 13, verse 1. 
Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour was come, that He should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved His own which were in the world, He loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil, having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he was come from God and went to God, he riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Now, this is an example of identification and servanthood the work of the priest at the tabernacle. Now, in the text, it says that Jesus laid aside his garments. Now, first, recognize that it doesn't mean that Jesus was naked. No, he laid aside his outer garments, and he still had on his inner garments. And then he took a towel, and he tied it around his waist. He girded himself uh, as with a sash, and he bent down to wash the disciples' feet. And with the end of that towel, he began to wipe them dry. That is servant's work. The lowliest of servants did this kind of work. 1,500 years before Christ came into the world, this very thing was showed in a type with the priest of the Old Testament. The priest girded on his sash, ready to work. Now, Jesus explained why he did this. God is visual. We said that the last time, too, that God uses demonstrations. And this was Jesus using the demonstration of how the disciples were to be humble and they were to do a servant's work. Now, first of all, they have to be washed from their daily defilement. And, of course, as I said, they need to be humble servants. So I'm confident that when the Apostle John wrote 1 John 1, 7, that he had this scene in mind of Christ washing the disciples' feet from their daily defilement. In, in John 1, 7, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us, from all sin. Now, you would note that cleanseth there is a present tense verse with a uh, verb with the meaning of continuous action. So we know that this, this is not a salvation verse. This is a verse about sanctification. This is cleansing for service. And that dovetails perfectly into the conversation that Jesus had with Peter in John 13 in verse number 10. Jesus saith unto him, He that is washed... Need is not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit, and ye are clean, but not all. Now that was Jesus' response to Peter's gushing request in verse number 9. Now, as you know, Peter was often prone to throw himself overboard, just step both feet into something when he doesn't know what he's talking about, and here Peter spoke and needed correction. Without understanding... Peter got in the way of the type that Jesus was trying to show. He would have upset that type. And so he says to the Lord, Lord, if I need to be cleansed, then if I have to be cleansed to have part with you, then just give me a whole bath. Wash me all over. But he didn't need to do that because this is not a picture of generation. Here we have a picture of sanctification for service. And so Peter un unknowingly confused doctrine which the first pope was prone to do, apparently. Now, with that comment, though, I'm going to stop because the next part of this will take us into that Old Testament worship of the tabernacle 
and gives us some more insight into this issue of washing feet. It's just another one of the interesting emblems of tabernacle worship that i like to show you, but that's going to take some time. So next week, we're going to come right back here to John chapter 13, and we're going to pick it up here, and I want to show you how that washing feet ties in with Old Testament priestly functions. And in that lesson next week, we're also going to talk a little bit about Baptist history and washing feet in Baptist history. And I think that's a little bit of an interesting part too. So what we see here is that the, the Old Testament types, the Old Testament uh, things that they did in worship had these tentacles that reach all throughout our worship even today in the New Testament. So these are beautiful garments that represent the holiness and the glory of Jesus Christ, that he is all together lovely. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now thanking you again tonight for Jesus Christ. What beautiful pictures we see in the scriptures of him. And it's good for us to take this time to learn and to study this and to find out what a wonderful Savior that we have in Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity that we, that we have to do that so that we can understand our salvation in a much, much better way. And as we do, we learn more and more every time. It's all of him and none of us. And we thank you, Lord, for the glory of Jesus Christ. Bless us tonight, Lord, and bless us as we sing this song. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.